Hello guys and welcome back. Um, I decided that it would be a good idea to start um, fighting some good um, murder mysteries from murderpedia.org on murders in the U.S. within New York. Um, and I found one and they're all in the A section and there's they're all in alphabet in alphabetical order. So this one I found is called Jack Henry Abbott. Jack Harry Abbott. Um, they all have it in categorized order. Their classification characteristics, number of victims that were murdered or killed, that he killed, <sighs> date of the murders and what had happened, date of birth, Victim profile, methods of murder, location, and status. So, classification, murder, characteristic, author. He is an author. Um, number of victims that he killed, two, which is a good thing, which is a good thing slash bad thing because these people had tragically have no, hopefully had no children passed down generations and stuff. And, um, the date of the murders was 1965 slash 1980. He was born on January 21st, 1944. Victim profile. Mm, the unsub. I'm going to start saying that because it's Criminal Minds. I love Criminal Minds. Have you not watched the new one? It's so good. I love it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> refraining from that. Um, the unsubs profile a fellow inmate slash Richard Aiden 22 meaning he was 22 years old when he stabbed him and his methods of murder is stabbing with knife and the location where these two people had been murdered was Utah and New York (sighs) I'm gonna read the status later um, Jack Harry Abbott was born January 21st, 1944, <clears throat> was an American colonel and author. He was released from prison after gaining praise for his writing and lauded by a number of high-profile literary cl- critics. Sorry, my voice is deep because I'm, um, haven't been feeling well since, um, Two slash twenty seven, twenty twenty three. Most immediately, he committed a murder and was locked up for the rest of his life. He was born in the U.S. Amy, U, Amy, U.S. Army base in Michigan to an American soldier and a Chinese woman. As a child, Abbott was in trouble and teachers, and later the law, and by the age of 16 he was sent to re- a reform school prison and release 
1965, age 25, age 21, at the age of 21, Jack Abbott was serving a sentence for forgery in Utah prison when he stabbed a fellow inmate to death. He was given a sentence of 3 to 25 years for the offense, and in 1971, his sentence was increased by a further 19 years after he escaped and committed a bank robbery in Colorado. Behind bars, he was a troublesome. He was troublesome and refused to obey guards' orders and spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. <sighs> okay, let me stop right there. If you don't know what solitary confinement is, it's basically another form of punishment, which I don't know if you saw the show, which is based off the Central Park Five on Netflix called When They See Us. One of them, the last one, was in, um, remained behind bars and he was in solitary confinement. And it's basically just a dark room. They have like these shutters for like for peeking eyes of guards and they have this thing, this thing in the bottom where they can give the inmate the meals and books and magazines and stuff like that. And, um, that's what it is. It's basically a dark and cold room. I don't really agree with solitary confinement because it's, one, scary, two, cold. And if I were ever to be incarcerated in jail, I don't want to be in solitary confinement. That's In 1977, he read the author Norman Mailer was writing in about convicted killer Gary Gilmore. Abbott wrote to Mailer and offered to write about his time behind bars and the condition he was in. Mailer agreed and helped to publish The Belly of the Beast, Abbott's book on life in prison system consisting of his letters to Mailer. Mailer supported Abbott's attempts to gain parole, which was successful in June 1980, when Abbott was released. He went to New York and was the toast of the literary scene for a short while. Norman Mailer was subjected to some criticism for his role in getting Jack Abbott released and was accused of being blinded by Abbott's evident talent for writing that he did not take into account Abbott's um, propensity for violence. In 1992 interview in the Buffalo News, Mailer said that his involvement with Abbott was another episode in my life in which I can find nothing to, che- to cheer about or nothing to take pride in. Murder and return to prison. On the morning of July 18th, about six weeks after getting out of prison, Jack Abbott went to a small cafe called Bin Bon in Manhattan. He clashed with 22-year-old Richard Eden, son-in-law of the restaurant's owner, owner um, over and then telling him the restrooms of 
was for staff only. The short-tempered abbot stopped running in the chest, killing him. The, nec- the very next day, unaware of abbot's crime, the New York Times ran a police review of the belly of the beast. After some time in the run, after some time on the run, Abbott was arrested and charged with murdering Richard Adnan. Oh, it's not Adrian. Correction, it's Adnan. Um, at his trial in January 1982, he was convicted of manslaughter and given 15 years to life. Apart from the advance fee of $12,500, Abbott did not receive any profits from the belly of the beast. As Richard Adnan's widow successfully sued him for $7.5 million in damages, which meant she received all the money from the book sales. This was a tragic irony of the murder, at least not lost on the community of the aspiring writers and actors in New York. While Abbott was an accomplished writer, Adnan was both an actor and a playwright whose talent was just beginning to be recognized. Shortly after his murder, his first play had been accepted for production for the La La Mama Theater Company. Final years. In 1887, Abbott published another book called My Return, which was not a success. Well, success. It contained a great deal of self-pity, but no remorse for his crimes. In fact, Albert blamed his crimes on the prison system and the government and said that he wanted an apology from society for the way he had been treated. He appeared before the parole board in 2001. His application was turned down because of his failure to express remorse in his lengthy criminal record and disciplinary problems in prison. On February 10, 2002, Jack Abbott Jack Harry Abbott hanged himself in his prison cell using a makeshift noose constructed from his bed sheets and shoelaces. He left a suicide note whose contents have not been made public. Well, sadly, we lost a murderer, but at the same time, most of these people have not have a good. Who says mass murders like Jeffrey Dahmer and what's his name? Ted Bundy have not had a good life. They've either been sexually abused, physically abused, and John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy has been physically abused, but not like in a sexual way. He's like been like spanked from his dad and and stuff. But that's a normal thing, normal household thing. Like I was spanked. And I'm not serial. And that's because I had to be disciplined for certain things I haven't, I shouldn't have done, like you know, steal, you know, because I would steal certain things at a young age. Like I'm not gonna lie, I stole the Princess Bride movie from Target when I was younger, and you know, it has like that black thing on it, and inside that black thing, it has like a metal thing. So I kind of took it out put it in my mouth and I ate it. Yeah, that's a little short story for you. And then that's how I got the movie and left with it. And I was like, uh, I said, we didn't pay for this. To my mom. He was like, oh, well, I guess now it's yours. 
and started laughing because I was like, oh my god, I stole a movie. But, um, yeah. Again, lesson learned. Let's not do that because then that way Target will know stuff. But they never really caught me because I've grown a bit and they haven't really recognized me. So. Oh no, it's good. Okay. Mm. Again, I think so that they have a murderpedia.org from the report. I'm going to read the report. And this episode is not about him, Jack Haley Abbott at all. It's just a segue from Kirsten Denise Smart's case. Okay, this is from March 2002. I think this is the first report. Over, I don't know what day it was in March, but okay, I'm gonna keep yawning. Because I'm tired. I'm tired all the time, man. Jack Harry Abbott hanged himself with a bedsheet and shoelace in a Wandy Correctional Facility. Um, I probably pronounced this wrong, but it's W-E-N-D-E Correctional Facility on Sunday, January 10th. No, February 10th. Oh my god, I keep messing up. But anyway, on Sunday, February 10th. At first, his family was um, was convinced he had been murdered. He wouldn't have killed himself that way, his sister had told the reporter. Maybe a bed sheet and a shoelace compromise an improbable instrument for Abbott. But they're equality, they're equally improbable as a penitentiary. Terry murder weapon or um penitentiary pet I can't pronounce this right. I think it's it it's per, it's spelled P E N I T E N I no N T Oh my god. See? I keep messing it up. Um <laughs> it's pronounced P E N I T E N I Oh my god. I keep messing it up. It's P-E-N-I-T-E-N-T-I-A-R-Y. Red Ruffin. Potent- I don't know. It's, I don't know, potentinary, potentinary murder weapon. In all the years I did research in prisons, I never heard of anyone being strung up by a bedsheet and a shoelace. It's not how it's done. And this was by Bruce Jackson. This report was by Bruce Bruce, Bruce Jackson, not Bruce Lee, Bruce Jackson. Thus far, no evidence has turned up suggesting anybody had, had a hand in hanging Jack Harry Abbott other than Jack Harry Abbott. Two coroners one hired by the state and the other hired by the family had called it suicide and the prison authorities say they have a suicide note and they haven't released the note and they haven't said why they won't let anyone see it but those guys adore secrets and neither the note said true bad things about them they don't want anyone anybody to know like Khalid Khalid from the Hunter Group report 
Harry, Jack Harry Abbott spent nine years before his 18th birthday in Utah reformatories. He was free for six months. Then he was sent to Utah Penitentiary to do some time. Oh, not penitentiary. I think it's penitentiary to do time for writing bad checks. He got some felony time three years later when he stabbed one inmate to death and injured another in a prison brawl. He robbed a bank during a brief escape in 1971 that earned him 19-year federal sentence on top of the state time. He was then 25 years old. In 1978, Abbott began a lengthy correspondence with Norman Mailer who was, at the time, writing the Executioner's Song, which was 1979. The fictionalized biography of executed murderer Gary Gilmore Mailer um, got some of Abbott's letters published in the Pre prestigious New Yorker review of books, which led to. Sorry, I sound like a robot, but. Um, I'm reading it off Murderpedia. Um, which led to the publication of Abbott's first book, In the Belly of the Beast, eight, 1982. When Abbott came up for parole, Miller wrote a strong letter on his behalf, not only saying that he was fit for release, but that Miller could guarantee he gained him gained full employment in New York. Abbott was transferred to New York halfway house in early of June of 1981. Dane, Christian, and I had done some research on death row in Texas not long before that, and we were exchanging regular letters and several men on the row. One of them read in, read in the belly of the beast and and wrote us that they're, they're the kind of letter someone on the inside writes somebody on the outside who doesn't know jack shit about the penitentiary and will never will. He and several other men on the row found the book, book success in New York pr proof of how easily con people in the free world were. Paul Abbott was at the halfway house. He was the darling of New York Literary Society. He was, a, he was on Good Morning America and went to fancy parties. I heard Mailer talk about him several times at the TV on TV and remember thinking you found your own Gary Gilmore. Mailer had never gotten to meet Gary Gilmore and I always thought that rankled him. He was hired to work for Executioner's Song by Lawrence Scheller after Gilmore's execution. And he based his Gilmore dialogue on Schiller's extensive interview tapes. With Abbott he had his own pet convict. 
It was like those people who get a big animal and you're not supposed to have and show it to on a leash with a jewel-encrusted collar. You don't know if you were supposed to admire the animal or them for having it on the leash with the jewel-encrusted collar. Well, yes, you do know. If I may... had stayed out of trouble for eight weeks, he would have gone on furlough. He didn't make it. Six weeks after he got to New York, he stabbed to death a waiter named Richard Annette. Because of his previous record, Abbott received a maximum sentence, 15 years to life. After he went back to prison, Abbott wrote a second book, My Return, in 1987. That's a title that should have been used by Douglas MacArthur about getting off the barge in Lafayette or Charles de Gaulle, the gouge, on a cognac on the Ducks maggots after sitting out in World War II in London or some politician who had been voted out of office and get back in again next time around because his successor is worse than he'd been my return. I didn't like the book and said so in reveal. Shortly thereafter, a woman who had become involved with him after he got the manslaughter sentence sent me a copy of the pro say brief he'd sent to me with judge a short time before. He was asking the judge to set him free. In her cover letter, she told me that. Like nearly everyone else, I failed to understand his sensibility. She said that if I read his brief carefully, I'd have a letter, a letter, I'd have a better understanding of the kind of man Jack Harry Abbott was. (laughs) And that she was correct. Though I didn't come to understanding she had in mind, I was struck by the fact that in the entire document Abbott wrote in hope his sentence would be set aside. I never referred to Richard Adnan by name. He referred only to the deceased. The part that, that especially caught my attention consisted of two sentences. There was never sufficient evidence presented at at my trial to support finding intent to kill the deceased in this case and this is words by um by Jack Harry Abbott this is words from his book my return um I'm gonna repeat it again there was never sufficient evidence presented at my trial to support a finding of intent to kill the deceased in this case was inflicted a single wound under the circumstance which would have been which have demanded the infliction of more wounds. If the single wound had been inflicted with the intent to kill, not merely to repel him. I translated that into English. <coughs> Thank you. Because that, apparently, to anyone who would read that, that made no sense. 
noties because this was like in the late 80s but my return it was 1987 and we're now in like 2023 so it's like a lot of years later like 97 that's like 10 2007 20 2017 30 in almost 40 years the book um, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, it's like six years? Yeah, six years. 36 years. This book has been launched like 36 years ago. So it's probably not, not really accurate in English standards. So, what's his name? Bruce Jackson translated it. Bruce Jackson translated it for us well me to read it to you guys so he kind of corrected it he said well he actually said in correct english this time they'll never prove i meant to kill the guy if someone like me really wanted to kill a guy like that you think i stab him only once more but that's not what jack henry Abbott wrote or he what wrote was and this is all in bold and murderpedia. There was never sufficient evidence presented at my trial to support a finding of intent to kill. The deceased in this case was inflicted of a single wound under circumstances which would have been demanded the infliction of more wounds. If the single wound had been inflicted with intent to kill and not merely to repel him. Jack Henry added couldn't lie about the facts of the killing there were witnesses the only issue was the meaning of those facts what impressed me about abbott's statement is how astutely he had used language so he could talk about what happened about admitting any guilt or responsibility for what happened he slipped into the 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 passive voice which has no actor no agent things happen but nobody Nobody's there doing them. Scientists wrote in the passive all the time because they like to pretend the hand of, hand of humans didn't influence what went on. Quote, the measurements were taken and were observed to be. Therefore, it was concluded that. End quote. We all do it when we feel the need. We don't think. Open quote. I'm switching into passive now. End quote. Any more than experienced driver thinks about when to move the right foot from the accelerator to the brake pedal. Little kids do it all the time. Open quote. How did the pallet or plate of Foucault cookies wind up on the floor? Yeah. End quote. It, f- open quote, it fell. End quote. After reading Abbott's statement, I understa- understood that there was, in language, a way to acknowledge events without in any way accepting responsibility or accountability for them. Language I decided to 
had profound moral power that could appear to recast the very facts that users purport to present. Open quote. His life was tragic from beginning to end. End quote. Norman Mailer said in a prepared statement after he learned of the suicide. Open quote. I never knew a man who had a worse life. End quote. I don't I don't know about that. Based on the two books on the pro say brief, Jack Harry Abbott was a man whose life was made perfect sense to him. A man of whom the clumsy organization of the world has was proof to the world's continuing inadequacy. Well, inadequacy. I don't know what made him that way. Why it was okay for him to kill the guy in prison and that waiter in Greenwich Village and do all the other stuff he got locked up for. But those are the things he did and that's why and that's the way he was right up to the end. And when he tied that bedsheet to the shoelace and quit the game on his own terms in his, in his own good time. Mailer and the Murderer by Siwa Chen, New York Times, November 12, 2007. Okay, I'm going to read this, and then this is like the end of it. It's kind of lengthy like the other one. So, uh, when I read, I kind of switch certain words for others, so be mindful. And I'm going to be mindful too. So hold on a second. A tidbit from Charles McGrath's lengthy obituary of Norman Miller, who died on Saturday, intrigued us. Miller's role in helping win parole of Jack Henry Abbott, a felon in 1981, Miller championed Mr. Abbott's release, citing the quality of the prisoner's writings. He agreed to hire Mr. Abbott as a research assistant. But Mr. Abbott went on to commit another murder within weeks of his parole. The episode was one of the low points of Mailer's long and storied life as a visit to the Times online archives show. According to the detailed profile of M.A. Farber of the Times, Mr. Abbott was born on January 21, 1944 in Michigan. His father, who was in the armed forces which of Irish descent, his mother of Chinese. He spent most of his early childhood in foster homes and was placed in school for inadequate boys at the age of 12. In 1963, after being accused of breaking into a shoe store and stealing some checks that he made out to himself, he was sentenced to maximum of five years in prison at the Utah State Penitentiary. In 1963, 1966. While serving that term, he was given a concurrent sentence of 3 to 20 years in a fatal knifing of a fellow inmate. In 1971, he escaped from prison and robbed a savings and loans associate in Denver. He was convicted of armed robbery and giving, given a 19-year federal sentence. 
He ended up in 1979 at Federal Penitentiary in Marion, where he became an avid reader and started to started a correspondence with Jarzy Kowinski, the Polish-born novelist. By then, he also sent a letter to Mailer after noticing in a newspaper article that Mailer had was writing a book based on the life of the convicted murderer Gary Gilmore. He was executed who was executed in Utah. The book The Executioner's Song was published in nineteen seventy nine and is considered by many of Mailer's masterpiece. Mr Abbott offered to help Mailer understand prison life. Mr Mailer open quote was deeply impressed with the literary quality of Mr Abbott's subsequent letters written by hand and often 20 pages or more end quote Mr. Farber wrote in the Times in 1980 the New York Review of the books published a section from the letters with a brief introduction of by Mailer Errol MacDonald a young random house editor who was looking for a new talent signed Mr. Abbott to a book contract with 12,500 advance the book would have would be made up for the excerpts for the letters to Miller, who would write a long introduction. Meanwhile, Mr. Abbott was trying to ob- obtain parole, but first he had to complete his state sentence in Utah for killing the inmate. In January 1981, federal authorities sent Mr. Abbott back to Utah when he was, where he was automatically considered for parole. By then, his book was being edited by publication, and he had a job offer from Mailer as research assistant. In June, Mailer sent Mr. Abbott at the F4, and the inmate, now free, was admitted to Halfway House on East 3rd Street. On the night of July 17th, Mr. Abbott and two women at the Bin Bon, a restaurant in the East Village, where Abbott got up from his table and asked Richard Adnan, a 22-year-old waiter and aspiring actor, to direct him to the toilet. Mr. Adnan explained that the toilet would be reached only through the kitchen, and because the restaurant did not have the accident insurance for the customer's only employees, could use the bathroom. Mr. Abbott argued with him, and they took their dispute outside, where Mr. Abbott stabbed Adnan to death early in the morning of July 18th. The following day, July 19th, the New York Times Book Review, unaware of Mr. Abbott's crime, published a review of his book, On the Belly of the Beast. The reviewer, Terence Des Press, a Colgate University professor, wrote that the, the work was awesome, brilliant, perversely ingenuous, and its impact is indelible, and as an art Articulation, there's an articulation, articulation of the Pinal nightmare is completely compelling. That same day, the police announced that they were searching for Mr. Abbott for killing the waiter. Federal authorities joined the manhunt. Meanwhile, Mr. Farber, the Times, constructed Mr. Abbott's mental and emotional state. Through scores of interviews with people who knew him and, an, and a, a review of his medical and legal records. Mr. Michoko 
Kai Kai Kutani, a cultural critic of the Times, wrote an extended essay about themes in Mr. Abbott's book and their relations in his shocking new crime. In September twenty, on September twenty third, nineteen eighty one, Mr. Abbott was seized in Louisiana and he was indicted and on October seventh, Mr. Farber weighed in with an article chronicling the manhunt. Mr. Abbott, who chose to represent himself in court, testified about his harrowing experience in foster care and in prisons and admitted to the killing. On January 21st, 1982, he was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and on April 15th, he was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. At the time, many people blamed not only Mailer, but also Mr. Abbott's book editor, and even Robert Silvers, the editor of the New York Review of Books, for having supported his release from prison. But Harry Howard, Howard, the waiter's father-in-law, said it was a criminal, it was a criminal justice system, not Mailer, that was at fault. Quote: I am not angry at Mailer or Random House. It's their job to recognize writing talent and. They saw it in Jack Abbott. My quarrel is with the prison authorities, with the establishment. It's their job to decide who goes out of prison and not because of some pressure from great writers or publishers. End quote. End quote. Mr. Abbott came out with a new book, My Return in 1986. In 1990, Mr. Adnan's widow filed a civil lawsuit against Mr. Abbott seeking $10 million in damages. In court, Mr. Abbott maintained that his attack on Mr. Adnan had been so quick that there was no suffering. Again, representing himself, he cross-examined the widow at one point, berating her for weeping. On June 15, 1990, a jury awarded... Mr. Adnan's family, $7.57 million in damages. Ms. Abbott was already barred from using any money he earned from the Adnan murder under the so-called Son of Sam law, a New York statute that prevents criminals from profiting from any crimes they commit. On February 10, 2002, Mr. Mr. Abbott, Mr. Jack Harry Abbott, was found dead in his prison cell in Alden, New York, near Buffalo. He had committed suicide. Now that we have finished, or I have finished, per se, reading this whole thing on murderpedia.org, I think he was sadistic and scary. He was half Asian, half American, or half Irish. And... I feel like his parents did not have the financial means to have him as a child. So I guess that's why he was in the foster care system. There's a lot of things that can happen in foster care. Some people don't want children. Some people do. And these kids grew up within the foster care system. You know, he probably had a traumatizing life in the foster care but sometimes a lot of that can trigger something, and, and um, 
not just for the age, but also in life, when they're in the adult life stage, it could trigger something in them, where like, oh, they start killing people, so that's what I'm assuming in a mental state. Also, that they didn't really physically have psychiatrists at the time to physically see what he had mentally, like schizophrenia or bipolar or um, anything like that. Like anything like that. I forgot there was this one, one, um, murder story, which I think is a good murder mystery episode to have, and it's not like a story story, where like, it's just a lot of details, I forgot, and he had like 16 personalities, I forgot, hold on, I'm gonna search it out now. Hold on, 16 personalities. Yep. Um, Bill Million. Bill, Billy Million. Hold on, Billy. Yep, Billy Million. He had 16 personalities. He had a lot. Billy Milligan. Or, hold on. They made a movie too. I hold on. Split. Splits. Hold on. Yeah, it was more psychological, this movie. This movie was. Oof. Kevin Wendell. Kevin on the crumb personalities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, hold on. Billy Milligan personalities names and what they did. Hold on. Yep. He had um like 19 personalities but the ones that stand out to him was Reagan Arthur Adelina and Christine they had more they have a lot of them he had a lot he had a 20 well according to reports they he had 24 um, personalities. Yeah, 24 personalities. Hold on, let me see. Okay. Let me see. Um, yeah, it's Billy Milligan, and he had. At least a good number of 24 split personalities. It was a lot. But that is interesting if you didn't know that. 
Yeah, he had a lot of personalities. He was crazy, too. But the way he was talking, man, you should have seen him talking. He was crazy. But anyway. Going back to, um... Jack Harry Abbott. Um, yeah, I feel like he exactly what they were talking about. Like, he had no remorse. He didn't say anything. Like, oh, I feel bad. I stabbed him over a bathroom. I'm sorry. Over a bathroom. Over the fact that the guy didn't let him use the bathroom because that bathroom was not for him. That bathroom was for the staff only, and he didn't listen, and he was too thick-headed and stupid to... Not, not be able to listen. It's like he was incoherent. Oh my god, I can't, can't with people. But anyway, um, yeah. Poor man. Poor man. So Richard Adnan was not the inmate. The fellow inmate in Murderpedia never mentioned his name. I think the penitentiary that he was at at the time when he was 21 didn't really mention his name, just said he's not so inmate and got into a brawl with the inmates. And that's what later added to his sentencing. So, um, that killing a fellow inmate and killing Richard Adnan, which he was 22 of age, which he was young. He had a wife. Poor man. Hopefully that woman had had children with him and can carry out the generation but anyway moving forward to the Christian smart case um we're gonna listen to episode 7 the iceberg which um in brief Short, it says the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office speaks out. So hold on, give me five minutes. Oh, sorry, give me ten minutes to set that up. A note from the Smart Family The statute of limitations in this case has expired on everything except murder. Anyone who comes forward with information will not be charged with any crime. This episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On November 17, 1977, 30-year-old Jane Morton Antonez was supposed to be on her way to visit her best friend in Atascadero, California, but she never showed up. The following afternoon, her brother found her 1972 Datsun parked off of Santa Barbara Road, a quarter mile from Highway 101. Jane's body was in the back seat. She was partially nude, with her hands tied behind her back. She had been raped, and her throat had been slit. Two months later, 28-year-old Patricia Dwyer was found dead in her Atascadero home. She was also partially nude with her hands tied behind her back and a single stab wound in her chest. San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's detectives quickly determined that 
based on the similarities and the proximity. Both murders were likely the work of one person. But without any suspects, and an incomplete 1970s understanding of DNA, the murders remained unsolved and were eventually declared cold. In 2016, after several years of requests, Sheriff Ian Parkinson was finally allotted a budget to hire a cold case detective whose job would be to re-examine unsolved crimes starting from page one. In January 2017, Detective Clint Cole was promoted to the position and moved to an annex of the Sheriff's Department lined with shelves full of azure blue boxes which contained the case files of 43 unsolved homicides in San Luis Obispo County. With the Antonez and Dwyer cases, he had a good place to start. In 2005, DNA from the two crime scenes had been sent to a lab and determined to have come from the same person, but the profile didn't match any existing records. With a sample still on file, Detective Cole sent it in for a familial DNA search, a fairly new forensic science in the state of California, which found a match, a family member of the killer. Cross-checking records of that match's relatives pulled up a welder from Atascadero, who had died in prison in 2014 while serving a sentence for robbery and rape. Detective Cole finally had a suspect, Arthur Rudy Martinez. But without a direct sample of Martinez's DNA, the investigation hit a wall again. Until Cole tracked down an ex-girlfriend of Martinez, who, unbelievably, had saved one of his old razors and a toothbrush in her bathroom medicine cabinet. Swabs of these items were sent in to be tested, and the profile extracted was a perfect match for DNA left at both the Antonez and Dwyer crime scenes. After 41 years, two Central Coast murders were solved using a toothbrush and a razor. And just recently, I was able to meet the detective who solved them. Hello, my name is Clint Cole. Um, I've worked for the Sheriff's Office for over 29 years. I've been a detective for about eight of those years, and I'm the lead investigator in the Kristen Smart investigation. When you first start looking at an older case, we kind of refer to it in law enforcement as another set of eyes or fresh eyes. Different investigators may focus on different things, and so that's the first step in a new case is to read all the reports starting in this case, you know, all the Cal Poly reports, the FBI reports, the DA reports, all of our reports, and there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, and then you go through, we have a case file where there's more information. Um, in this case, it's a very large case with that type of information. And so there's probably nine or 10 boxes in this case. And then we have a computer system that has pretty much all of that. I mean, if you stacked it with paper, I couldn't even tell you how high it would possibly go. There's a lot of information on this case. This case has never been cold. It's always been active, um, especially since Sheriff Parkinson got elected in 2011. Um, someone's always been working on the case. And just because nothing's been public doesn't mean nothing's being done. I mean, I can tell you for sure that this case is worked on every day from the sheriff all the way down to my level as the investigator, it, it's a top priority and you know we're never gonna stop, we're never gonna give up until we can bring Kristen home. With a winning streak in solving decades old cases with brand new technology, 
Detective Cole could be the person that the Kristen Smart investigation has been waiting for. But in Kristen's case, one of the most frustrating parts has always been the overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence, paired with a seeming deficit of physical evidence. But more than ever before, I have a really good feeling about the prospect of new physical evidence in this case. I know, because I'm looking at it right now. episode of your own backyard in november i intended to take a break for a while but one thing that i hadn't been able to do was talk with the san luis obispo sheriff's department or get them to comment on the case or the podcast i reached out to the sheriff in the middle of production with a request to speak with him on or off the record about the Kristen smart case and received a cordial reply less than an hour later that he would discuss it with his staff the next morning I didn't hear back until all six episodes were finished, when I received an email from Commander Nathan Paul, who's asked me to call him Nate, and he not only agreed to speak with me, but also invited me to record the entire thing. All right. All right. Bye. That will avoid him blowing me up while we're talking. All right. <laughs> Nate Paul was the lead investigator on the Kristen Smart case from 2014 to 2017. And even though the case has since been taken over by Detective Clint Cole, Nate is still the go-to guy for information about the investigation because of the amount of time he spent working on it. The Sheriff's Department's policy is not to comment on an ongoing and active case, but they're making an exception today. Because they declined to comment publicly about the podcast before, I thought I'd open with that. So I'd kind of like to start with your your feelings on the podcast. So the podcast, first of all, like I said earlier, it was so well done just in terms of the production quality. And uh, clearly, you're an excellent researcher. So I found it, for lack of a better way to put it, it was neat to listen to because somebody had, you had obviously done your homework. Uh, officially, I think the, the greatest benefit of the podcast is the renewed interest that it's cultivated in the case and you know you can't ask for anything else especially for a case that is older to have a a, a vehicle that drives renewed interest because you never know when that interest can lead to additional information that maybe blows something wide open so i think your podcast is extremely positive and beneficial for the case because uh, any public help that comes in, especially something that as yet unreported is something we'd love to get, you know, information wise. Yeah. And I was curious about that because 
I feel like I haven't heard an update about this since the excavation up at the P, mm -hmm. and it just kind of went quiet. And so I wasn't sure how you guys feel about suddenly this wave of public interest back in the case, if that's a good thing or a bad thing for you guys. Public interest that drives, that could potentially drive information coming forward, it's nothing but a good thing. It's great. You know, we are always looking for more information or new information or that one additional tip. If your podcast or anything else for that matter generates public interest or causes that key witness who has never come forward to come forward or in some way breaks loose additional information, we're glad to have it. You know, that's... That would, that's great. Totally great. I'm glad to hear that. That's very, that's a relief for me. Honestly. The subject also came up on its own when I interviewed Detective Cole. And in terms of the 43 unsolved cases that you inherited when you moved into this position, how is the Kristen Smart case unique? It stands out, one, because of its um, popularity, and you've really increased that. <laughs> Um, is that a good or bad thing? It's a good thing. Yeah, no, there's nothing, nothing negative about what you're doing. It's, it's helped us. We've, your podcast has helped us generate some leads for us that we fo have followed up on and are continuing to follow up on. It's difficult for us because we live in the secret world. And so we're balancing what the benefits of what you're doing are with the benefits of us not being able to to tell people anything. And so that's the only difficulty about it, but it's certainly, you know, beneficial to the case. And like I said, you know, we've we've acted on tips from the podcast. I've also had one question that I've been eager to get an answer to for almost two years now. Um, when you came in and started looking at these, and I'm sure Parkinson too started looking at the files, did you feel like the previous two administrations had done as good of a job as they could on this case? Are there parts of this case that frustrate me significantly? Yeah, absolutely. Is it safe to say that mistakes were made? I don't think you can argue that. Feelings-wise, is that frustrating as an investigator? Absolutely. If I had a crystal ball or a Wayback Machine, I know where I'd go. You know, I'd teleport myself back to May of 1996 and, you know, do things differently, but I don't. So it's, it's about setting that frustration aside and figuring out where to from here and what can we do with the puzzle pieces we have and where can we plug in other puzzle pieces, you know, to move forward. But it is frustrating, no doubt, to look back and see, you know, some of the mistakes that were made, absolutely. Are there any specific things that you can comment on that specifically frustrated you when you got involved? <laughs> <laughs> That's a... There are many. There are many. I, I wish many things were done different. And, and I guess I can leave it at that because what good is it to go point by point through all the previously identified things? Things that are in the public record that outrage the public upset me as well and upset many people here but what good does it do to dwell on those because that's not gonna that doesn't help us move the case forward it doesn't help find Kristen it doesn't help bring those responsible for what happened to her to justice it's you know you can spin your wheels but in the end I want to move the case forward so there's there's quite a few things 
that are frustrating um, to many, <clears throat> and we're not alone. So again, it's kind of like no excuses for that, and I can't control that because I didn't work here in 1996. My first exposure to the smart case personally was reading about it in the local newspaper and seeing it on local TV because I was a resident here at the time. Where I'm going with that is since Sheriff Parkinson took office, nobody assigned to this case today was part of the case back then. So we inherited the situation that it is now. I can't and will not make excuses for the shortcomings and the oversights that took place earlier in the case at the hands of the sheriff's office or other investigating agencies. I inherited the situation that I'm working through now. Again, because I was a local, if you will, when this happened, uh, and not in law enforcement at all, the concept that, like when I was the lead investigator in this case, that I would bring some sort of bias or agenda or cover-up is frankly absurd because, again, the first knowledge I had of the case was reading it in the paper or seeing it on TV. So you mentioned us being you know, quiet, if you will, or not, not talking a lot. Ongoing and active is an awfully buzzwordy type way to refer to the case, and yet it's true. And the promise I can make to the smarts is that I will do my best to move this case to closure. Um, I've been a member of the the Find Kristen Smart Facebook group for years. I read it every day at lunchtime, uh, so I'm totally aware of of the the dialogue that goes on there. And I think it's important for people to know that even those people that maybe don't like me or don't like the sheriff's office because they do think there's some cover up or conspiracy, or that we are truly just the most incompetent law enforcement entity on the face of the planet, uh, the emotion and the heartfelt desire that people want to bring Kristen home you can't be argued with so even if we don't agree or they think that I am you know truly just incompetent uh, I respect the fact that ultimately we all want the same thing so I would offer to those people that uh, we're not incompetent and we're on it if Mrs. Smart is happy that probably says something and you know we're gonna do our thing and move forward but I didn't come into this with an agenda, and my number one objective is to find Kristen. And that's what we're doing. Another question that I want to clear up while I have the chance. Is the reason that Susan Flores's backyard wasn't excavated in 2000 while the search warrant was active? Dennis Mann says that Undersheriff Steve Bolts told him that a vote was taken that day on whether or not a dig was worth the cost, and that the majority voted against it. But publicly, Bolts claimed that Dennis got it wrong, and that the warrant didn't even authorize a dig that day. So, what's the truth? I do not know specifically why they did not dig. As far as was it actually a vote, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. When, when you receive a search warrant, generally, the search warrant authorizes a search of a property for the listed evidence. As bound, in one of the boundaries is reasonableness. In a case like this, could it be argued that an excavation is reasonable, I believe you could absolutely make that argument. As to why they didn't excavate that day, I don't know. And as I expected, there's plenty of questions that he knows the answer to, but can't share for strategic reasons and case integrity, such as 
Whether Susan Flores' backyard has been ruled out entirely as the location of Kristen's body. That's the sort of thing that I can't tell you <laughs> because, uh, because it is an ongoing and active investigation. There's another facet, and that's the civil case, because there was the discovery order that you referenced that was ultimately uh, stayed in the Court of Appeals. So every year we go back to civil court and uh, file a sealed document, uh, annual declaration with the court that explains specifically what we've done in the last year to move the case forward. So if there's a narrative that exists in the public that says that, you know, nobody is holding us accountable, that we could just be dawdling or whatever, cover up all this stuff. Actually, every year we go to court and the judge reveal, reveals a sealed declaration where we specifically state in detail things that I can't tell you today and we can't tell the public what we've done in the last year. Based on that annual declaration, the uh, stay in the discovery order has been renewed every year. I've been told along the way that you guys have refused help from the FBI, you haven't wanted to turn the case over to the FBI. Where does that sit now in terms of what you're doing and why you won't involve the FBI? So that's, that's a really good question. In, in summary, the FBI is involved. We work with them regularly on this case. They've assisted us greatly with resources and assistance uh, in, in the field. We readily share information back and forth between our agencies. So the bottom line is the FBI is involved uh, day in and day out with this case. So what the public knows about this case is obviously only a fraction of what's going on behind the scenes. But it takes a certain amount of blind faith in the Sheriff's Department to be content with that. And after more than 23 years without a resolution in this case, the public's faith isn't strong. So I asked Nate to get as specific as he can without jeopardizing the integrity of the investigation. And eventually, he agrees to share some numbers with me. Take search warrants, for example. The public has been speculating for years about why the Sheriff's Department hasn't gotten another search warrant for the two Flores family homes. In my previous episodes, I talked about the two of them that I could find information on. One executed on July 22nd, 1996 at Ruben Flores's house, and one on June 19th, 2000 at Susan Flores's house. But it turns out that's only the tip of the iceberg and below the surface. Since Sheriff Parkinson has taken office, we've written and executed 18 search warrants at nine separate locations. And included within those physical searches, uh, we utilized canines trained to detect human remains in three of those searches. 18 search warrants. Not since 1996, but just since 2011. So what else has happened that the public doesn't already know about? While the details of the entire 23-year investigation might be nearly impossible to calculate at this point, Nate is able to access information about the current era of the Kristen Smart investigation from 2011 through today, what we'll call the Parkinson era. During the Parkinson era, 91 new person-to-person -person interviews have been conducted. Each time detectives interview a new witness or collect a new piece of evidence, they add what's called a supplemental report to the existing case file. 
Since Parkinson took office, they've written 364 new supplemental reports. In that same period of time, and not counting the cost of over 7,500 labor hours, roughly $62,000 has been spent on the hard costs of investigating the Kristen Smart case. That means investigative supplies and expenses like cadaver dogs, excavation of potential burial sites, and most importantly, evidence testing. In 2011, we did a complete re-examination of all the physical evidence in this case. Forensic specialists from our agency, the FBI, and Cal DOJ reviewed every single physical evidence item currently held under alternate light sources, uh, using magnification, uh, using chemical reagents that indicate the presence of certain chemicals. And at the conclusion of that re-examination, they repackaged every evidence item to be potentially presented in court. We ended up sending 37 items out to various outside labs for further DNA testing. Can you give me a vague sort of idea of what we're talking about when we say items? It, it could be clothing. In Keep in mind, this is a lot of this evidence was seized in 1996. It could be clothing. It could be other personal effects. So people ask a lot of questions through the podcast about things like the dorm room mattress, things like that. Do they still have those things in evidence? I'm sure you can't confirm specifically what you do have, but in terms of those sorts of things, you still have everything that you always had, right? We do, and in fact, we have all the physical evidence in the case now held in one central location, and all the physical evidence when it was centralized was then subject to the re-exam. Has there been any new evidence recovered since that initial 1996 investigation? There has. Since 2011, we've actually recovered 140 items of new evidence. New evidence. That's precisely why this case hasn't been declared cold. But how do I know that all of this isn't just talk? How can we know that they're not just saying they're doing things while privately they're just sitting on their hands? I know because people are sending me tips too. And sometimes, those tips are about things that the Sheriff's Department is doing. In Episode 5 of this podcast, I discussed the issues of the Flores family's pickup trucks. To recap, Paul Flores drove a green 1993 Ford Ranger in high school, bought brand new from a dealership in Arroyo Grande. On February 3rd, 1996, he was pulled over at a gas station in San Luis Obispo, blew a .13 into the breathalyzer, and was arrested for driving under the influence. On March 13th, Paul was convicted in San Luis Obispo Superior Court, and his driver's license was suspended. Subsequently, the Ford Ranger was impounded in April and held in a tow yard in Grover Beach. When Kristen went missing on May 25th, 1996, Paul apparently didn't have a vehicle on campus at the time. According to Rubin's deposition, no one had access to the Ford Ranger in the month of May because it was still an impound. Yet, when asked how Paul got home from Cal Poly that Memorial Day weekend... Sunday morning after the disappearance of Kristen Smart, how did Paul get... I picked him up at school. And you picked him up in what vehicle? The Ranger. Then, according to Rubin, Susan, and Paul... 
The black eye he had that weekend was sustained while changing the stereo in his Ranger while it was parked in Ruben's garage. So to say that Paul didn't have access to that truck at the time of Kristen's disappearance is absurd. By all accounts, the whole family had access to the Ranger around May 25th. And then by Ruben's deposition in November 1997, the Ranger has been sold to a dealership. Paul's four-year-old vehicle bought brand new, which he posed proudly with in the Arroyo Grande High School yearbook. A quick tangent. One thing that stood out to me in Susan's 1997 deposition, which I haven't mentioned yet, is in regards to Paul's black eye. According to Susan, when she first saw Paul on Monday, May 27th, she asked, quote, what the hell happened to you? Paul's response was, don't worry about it, it's nothing. James Murphy then asks her, did he tell you how he received the discoloration below his eye? And Susan's response is, quote, no, I think Reuben chimed in and then they both were talking and I didn't pay much attention to it. Something about he was working on his car and he said, yeah, he was. He was under the steering wheel and messing around with his stereo equipment. It seems interesting that Susan would have such a strong reaction to seeing Paul's black eye if she already knew how he got it, which makes me think that Susan was still in the dark on Monday about what had happened over the weekend. And when she asks Paul how he got it, he doesn't tell her that it was from playing basketball. He doesn't even tell her that he hit it on his steering wheel. Reuben does. Even interrupting Paul, talking over him so much that Susan just tunes them both out. This brief exchange, I think, might say a lot about what was happening over that weekend and who was involved. Susan doesn't seem to know what happened to Paul. Paul doesn't want his mom to know what happened either. Why is Reuben so quick to volunteer an answer for him? I think it's important to consider. Back, though, to the trucks. Another vehicle that Paul had access to was Ruben's white 1985 Nissan pickup. Ruben says in his deposition that Paul never drove that truck. But when James Murphy asks where that vehicle is now, Ruben says it was recently stolen in San Diego after Paul left it there. And he reveals that it was registered in Paul's name. He doesn't know what his son was doing down in San Diego, and he's unaware of any friends that Paul has in that area. When I spoke to a woman who was working with Paul at an Outback Steakhouse in Irvine at the time that the truck was stolen, she told me that she never once saw Paul driving a car because his license was suspended and he rode a bike to work. I don't remember him ever having a truck, you know? So I don't know, that's interesting. As I mentioned previously, both trucks were gone by 1997, and for some reason, law enforcement never searched them for evidence. I'm assuming this has to be one of the, quote, many frustrating parts of this investigation that Nate was referring to. I'm bringing all of this up again, because I have an update. I've received hundreds of tips now, some of them incredibly helpful, and some just interesting. I try to be very careful about the ones I follow up on, so I can find a way to verify the claims. This usually involves checking property records or newspaper archives to see if the info holds up to scrutiny. Several times I've reached back out to people I've previously interviewed to see if they can confirm parts of a new tip. 
When I receive an email through the contact form on my website, I get a text-only message with spaces for name, email, subject, and message. A few times, I've gotten messages from people asking me to contact them, but they forgot to leave a name, phone number, or email, so I'm stuck unless they write back. There's no IP address attached to these messages, since they're plain text only, so I can't track them down. Sometimes, the tipster just drops an interesting piece of information, with no contact details, because they want to remain completely anonymous. Towards the end of this past October, I received one of those emails. No name, no contact info. Subject line, truck. The message was quick and to the point. Quote, Great job on the podcast. You may be interested to know that one of the Flores family's missing trucks was located today. This isn't the first mysterious tip I've gotten like this, and honestly, my first instinct was to ignore it. It seemed pretty unlikely that anyone would have this information. Without a way to reply to the sender, there wasn't much I could do with the tip anyway. But I thought about it for the rest of the day. When I checked my email the next morning, there was a new message. Subject line, truck. Message, Chris. I learned about this truck in a roundabout way, and after listening to your podcast, I thought you would find that interesting. The sheriff's office is traveling out of state to collect it now. Keep up the good work. Now, they had my attention. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to this anonymous source by the letter J. I still didn't have a way to reply or to verify the information but I refreshed my email every two minutes for the next several hours before one more message from Jay popped up. I'm not going to read this one, but this time the sender included a little more information about their role, a location of where the truck was being taken to, and a rough time when it should be arriving. Cautious and suspicious, I looked up the address and confirmed from an aerial view that it was an open enough space that I could scope it out from a safe vantage point without putting myself at risk. I parked in a parking space not far from the location, and I waited. I saw several vehicles filtering in and out of the spot, but after a while, the area was quiet for a long time. Behind a cyclone fence, about 10 feet away from me, was the shape of a truck, covered loosely by a gray tarp flapping in the wind. For now, I don't want to say too much more about it, but while I stood there, it took me several minutes to register that the vehicle right next to this truck, which had a tarp balled up over its bed like it had been completely blown off by the wind, was a 1980s Nissan pickup. I held on to this piece of info for several months, but when I had the opportunity to sit down with Commander Paul, it seemed like a good time to ask about it. In the time that we spoke, I was struck by his careful and direct responses. 
to the extent that occasionally, I wondered if he had rehearsed them before I came in. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you're going to make an official comment about an active investigation, especially on tape, you should probably brush up on the details. But what I mean is that he was clearly prepared for this interview. Even questions about the department's missteps and charges of corruption or conspiracy didn't seem to shake him. But when I asked about the trucks... If I received a tip that told me that you guys had recently recovered one of the Flores family's vehicles, would that be inaccurate? I can't say specifically if we have an item like that. But that's an interesting theory. (laughs) So if I were to say in the episode, for instance, that I believed you might know something more than you're able to confirm, that's not going to harm what you're working on? The last thing I would seek to do would be to muzzle somebody who's out uh, conveying information that's generating interest in this case, you know, to the public, because all in all, your podcast is beneficial and important because it's educating people. So based on that, this case is solvable and we're pushing on. And the last thing I would do is tell you, you know, not to report on something like that. Your information came from somewhere. Even without any sort of formal training and interview techniques, Commander Paul's body language seemed like a dead giveaway to me. The source was not speculating. Jay was present when the truck was found. It took a few minutes before Nate seemed to relax again, but the look on his face was like he was trying to see through me. I imagined him racking his brain for who could have tipped me off, because it wasn't anyone in the sheriff's department. The issue of the trucks was really only a small part of our conversation that day, but no other topic seemed to get that kind of response. I'm not sure whether the sheriff's department will confirm or deny this information once I release this episode, or if they'll just give it a good old-fashioned no comment. But what I do know is that what the public has been told about this investigation isn't all there is to it, because below the surface is the rest of the iceberg. My final question to Commander Nate Paul was a very basic one but one that gave me another opportunity to read into his response to decide how I felt about the current trajectory of this investigation. Do you feel good about where it's at right now? If it is it, or is it just frustrating? Do I feel good? It's an interesting way to put it. I don't feel frustrated. A detective never really feels good until the case is cleared. I feel I don't lose sleep over what we're not doing, put it that way. So yeah, I feel good. (laughs) And I'm starting to feel better too. Because between everything I've discovered on my own and everything new I've learned in the past few months, I think you can put the pieces together. Detective Clint Cole is the first official who's been put exclusively in charge of re-examining cold and unsolved cases in San Luis Obispo County. He's just been put in charge of the Kristen Smart investigation, which is much warmer than a cold case. 
140 new pieces of evidence since 2011, 91 new person-to-person -person interviews, 364 supplemental reports, and as of just three months ago, another one of the Flores family's trucks has now been recovered. DNA has advanced to the point that toothbrushes and razors can connect a suspect to a victim, or vice versa. If any part of Kristen Smart ever even touched one of those vehicles, and a pin-sized spot of her DNA remains there. Tick-tock. Backyard, Episode 7, The Iceberg. Now I'm gonna pull up Episode 8, called The 16-Hour Gap. Note from the Smart Family. The statute of limitations in this case has expired on everything except murder. Anyone who comes forward with information will not be charged with any crime. This episode contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Part of the reason that I first got involved with telling the story of Kristen Smart was that things had been too quiet following the excavation of the Cal Poly hillside in 2016. In fact, all of 2017, 2018, and most of 2019 passed with no public updates in the case. Kristen's name appeared in local newspapers just one time during that three-year stretch. When a friend of mine held a 23rd anniversary vigil in May of 2019 at the Point of Hope in Shell Beach, which was advertised on local news and on social media, only two other people showed up. That all changed in 2020. On January 5th, in response to renewed public interest in the case, Brand Creative West, a sign shop in Arroyo Grande, replaced the 23-year-old billboard in the village, free of charge. The billboard, which I previously described as sun-faded and hard to see, is now bright and vibrant and includes a link to this podcast. On January 18th, an article ran in the Stockton Record, which quoted Denise Smart as saying that she had recently been contacted by an FBI agent who had advised her to, quote, be ready. This is really going to be something you don't expect. I watched all week as theories began to spread on social media, theories which largely disregarded all of the circumstantial evidence that points to what happened to Kristen Smart. Rumors began to spread that Kristen had been found alive in another country and that she was waiting to be reunited with her parents, or that she had been murdered by a serial killer. One rumor even stated that high-profile celebrities like Ellen DeGeneres were sending coded messages about Kristen's rescue, or that Donald Trump had announced it in a news conference. None of this is accurate. The Smart family has stayed in contact with many investigators over the years, most of whom have long since retired, but continue to offer them friendly advice. In this case, 
The advice was simply to have a plan in place, since things were obviously heating up in the case again, and you never know when that phone call is going to come. On January 29th, I released episode 7 of this podcast, which ended with a tip that I had received, which brought me to the right place at the right time to see two trucks in the custody of the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Department. Trucks which I concluded belonged to the Flores family in 1996. When I confronted Commander Nate Paul with that information, while interviewing him for the podcast, he seemed caught off guard. If I received a tip that told me that you guys had recently recovered one of the Flores family's vehicles, would that be inaccurate? But when the episode aired, the Sheriff's Department took the unprecedented step of putting out a press release that same afternoon. Quote, Although it is generally not our practice to comment on items of evidence in active investigations, in this specific case, we can confirm that the Sheriff's Office currently holds two trucks in evidence that belong to Flores family members in 1996. The Sheriff's Office will not be commenting any further and no additional information will be released at this time. One week after that press release, headline news. Now to a dramatic FBI raid. New information today in the search for Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. For 24 years, Flores has been a person of interest. Today, search warrants were served in San Luis Obispo County. As investigators bag evidence, you can see Susan Flores pacing inside the home. It's her home that also sits just a thousand feet from this billboard. Neighbors of Ruben Flores, Paul's father, tell KSBY they saw investigators search his house in Arroyo Grande, too. And L.A. County. Paul Flores woke up to a search warrant at his current home in San Pedro. As well as the location in Washington State. It's believed Paul's sister, Irma Linda, lives there. Home searches of Paul, Susan, Ruben, and Irma Linda Flores. Investigators took away bags of evidence from that home and questioned the man inside. His name is Paul Flores. He's 43. And authorities say he was the last man to have seen that alive back in May of 1996. Four search warrants served nearly a quarter century after Stockton's Kristen Smart vanished. Now seeing developments in a missing persons case this old is significant because historically these are some of the hardest cases for law enforcement to investigate. And neighbors said they have been told through social media that someone involved in a possible murder lives in that house. Seems to be a friendly guy, keeps himself shy, he stutters when he talks, like he's nervous. They served search warrants in California and Washington State in connection to the disappearance of Kristen Smart. But what came of it, we don't know. Four search warrants served simultaneously at the homes of each of the four members of Paul Flores's immediate family. I don't need to explain that this is a huge development. 23 years into a missing persons case, it's not easy to obtain a court order to seize items from a person of interest's house without some significant breakthrough, let alone to serve his entire family at the same time in three different counties in two separate states. I'll talk more about this in a minute, but more good news is coming. Two days later, on February 7th, Cal Poly responded to a circulating petition by agreeing to remove Kristen's failing grades, which she had received when she went missing and failed to take her finals. The university admitted that this was an oversight and, quote, immediately instructed the registrar's office to make the necessary changes. Another small victory for Kristen Smart. Three days later, on February 10th, 
An Oceana resident purchased his own Kristen Smart billboard, identical to the one in the Arroyo Grande village, and erected it at the entrance to Oceano, on the corner of Highway 1 and Terra Nueva Lane. Then, on April 22nd, more headline news. We begin with breaking news. A search warrant is being served at the San Pedro home of Paul Flores. He's a person of interest in the 1996 disappearance of Kristen Smart. Aerial footage captured a green tent and a slew of law enforcement outside the Los Angeles County home of Paul Flores. It's the second time this year. The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office said, with the help of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, they went to look for specific items of evidence. We searched the home of Paul Flores for the second time this year. Investigators were looking for specific items of evidence today. Today's search warrant only involved Flores' home. Authorities say the warrant is sealed, so they can't say what they're looking for or what they found. A helicopter circled over Paul Flores' San Pedro home. A forensics tent was set up on his front lawn. It's not easy to get a search warrant. Evidence has to be presented to a judge who must conclude that it's reasonable to believe that new evidence will be found. So how does this relate to the February search warrants? What did investigators find? Why go back a second time? And why did they only return to one of those four houses? In photos and videos published by local news stations, it's not hard to determine which specific items of evidence investigators seized. Right on the front page of the New York Times, a photo of sheriff's detectives and FBI agents carrying out boxes filled with computer towers, cell phones, laptops, and tablets. All of the Flores family's digital devices. I've seen lots of comments on articles and videos about these searches asking, what do they expect to find after all this time? Why would the family still have computers from 24 years ago? Which may be missing the bigger picture here. Digital devices like phones, computers, and laptops, they say there could be evidence there that didn't exist nearly 24 years ago. So what kind of new evidence did they expect to find? I have a guess. Because just four months before the search warrants were served, a podcast push the incident back into the spotlight. Attention has been put back onto this case because of a popular podcast called Your Own Backyard, which has helped generate new leads in this decades-old case. The podcast has renewed interest in the case and is putting pressure on authorities to solve it. Uh, Ashley, it just seems like the momentum is building at this point. One word, two syllables, podcast. A podcast which, according to their own friends and family, got the whole Flores family talking about the case again, to each other, on their computers and cell phones. summarize in one sentence what I've learned over the past two and a half years of studying this case, I'd put it like this. 
Investigations don't happen like they do on television. At least, not this one. A number of different agencies have investigated the disappearance of Kristen Smart over the years. Since May of 1996, Cal Poly Campus Police, the District Attorney's Office, the Sheriff's Department, the FBI, civil attorneys, criminal attorneys, insurance companies, private investigators, the California Department of Justice, the California Rescue Dog Association, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have all contributed, conducting interviews, taking depositions, performing scientific testing, and more. Some of those investigators have long since retired, and others were never officially employed to begin with. So as I've had informal conversations with dozens of them, they've been willing to share some of what's gone on behind the scenes, things they discovered or tips they collected. Some of their discoveries are so significant that I can't believe the case wasn't resolved years ago. So I'll ask the next person up the chain. What about this tip from 1997? What about that witness from 1996? Wasn't that enough? And so often, they're just as surprised to hear about it as I was. The district attorney investigators know what they know, and the attorneys know what they know, and the retired private investigator knows what he knows. But they're not always sharing all of their information with each other. It's like someone poured out a 10,000-piece puzzle onto the floor, and each agency grabbed a few handfuls, huddled in their own corner, and started to build their own version of the whole picture. One of them has a horse's head, the other has just a tail. One of them just got a bunch of blue tiles that are either the sky or the water, but it's hard to tell when they don't know there's supposed to be a horse in there somewhere. Now, add 24 years to that. Regardless of how scattered the pieces got, everyone building their separate puzzles, at least all the ones I've talked to, unanimously agreed on one thing. Paul Flores knows what happened to Kristen Smart. The most comprehensive of all of the puzzle builders has been the Smart family. They kept a notebook next to the phone in Kristen's bedroom, and every time they received new information, they would write it down and date it. When Stan Smart traveled to San Luis Obispo in June of 1996 to look for his daughter, he brought a notebook with him and kept track of everything, from the locations he searched, to the people he received tips from, to the amount of money he spent on water and coffee for the volunteers who helped him search. It's so much information, which has come from sources they trust are pursuing these leads, that they haven't necessarily taken the time to go back through every page over the years. So, I offered to do it for them. For weeks this summer, I spent every single day hunched in my office chair, poring over words until my eyes were blurry, trying to decipher the occasional hasty chicken scratch, pausing to admire Denise's doodles, probably drawn whenever a phone call with a rambling investigator dragged on, or how Kristen's sister Lindsay, who was still in middle school in 1996, would write notes to her mom in the margins. Good night. I love you. Sometimes, the most generic entries contain the most interesting information, so I spent weeks checking every tip and contact number against a reverse telephone directory, 
calling people to clarify what they had said back in 1996, and mapping addresses alongside known locations. There's a timeline I've been compiling for two years now with any piece of significant information organized by date. As of now, it's 37 full pages and still expanding, which makes it fairly easy to fact check times and places. When someone came forward earlier this year to tell me that they had seen Paul at a prom party the night after Kristen's disappearance, a party where several women said he offered them a strange homemade drink, which he brought in a Tupperware container. I appealed on social media, and within hours, a handful of Arroyo Grande High School students had emailed me scans of their dated prom invitations, which they dug out of boxes. I've spoken to former GTE employees, who worked alongside Ruben Flores for years, and collected a map of payphones he was in charge of servicing in 1996 information that the smart family's attorney had trouble getting out of him during his deposition may of 96 what would be the most rural phone or phones that you would service as a technician where would they be physically located do you understand the question yes okay valuable information came from the smart family's notebooks kept contemporaneously and left untainted for years so sifting through them was a chore with substantial rewards at one point i remember something stan smart told me the first time we met about spending four days in the river with his son searching for gold before finding a quarter ounce which was exciting because normally you don't find hardly any like this time with all of the information I've collected and organized from various sources, I've now got a pretty definitive timeline of events, which I've fact-checked against official records. But the period I want to scrutinize is the most important period of all. The three days between when Kristen Smart was last seen with Paul Flores, around 2 a.m. on May 25th, and when campus police finally took a missing persons report at 11.40 a.m. on May 28th. In those three days, Kristen Smart disappeared, and while her dorm mates struggled to get authorities to take it seriously, the perpetrator had ample time to get rid of the evidence. So I'm going to try to shade in the known areas in order to get a better look at the unknown. Before I get to the walk home from the party on Crandall Way, I want to talk about how Paul Flores got to that party. In his interview with campus police on May 30th, Paul says he was hanging out in his room at Santa Lucia Hall that Friday. His roommate, Derek, had left town for the weekend, and Paul spent the evening drinking beers alone, specifically a 20-ounce Sapporo and a 22-ounce Mickey's malt liquor, before he decided to walk to his sister's house. His sister, Irma Linda, lived in a house just one and a half miles away from Santa Lucia Hall with her boyfriend, Brett. Before moving into his dorm on November 17, 1995, 
Paul had lived with them for a few months at the beginning of his freshman year. He tells police he tucked another 22-ounce beer into the pocket of his sweatshirt and then started the walk to his sister's when he passed Crandall Way and noticed the party. One puzzling thing from that interview with campus police is that he tells them he didn't call his sister before starting to walk to her house. They ask him directly. But in a log of phone calls placed from Paul's dorm room, provided by the telephone administration manager at Cal Poly, it shows a call placed at 8.59 p.m. Friday, May 24th, to Irma Linda's house. What is the purpose of lying about something like this? Is it even a big deal whether he called his sister or not? Did he just forget? Either way, he never made it to Irma Linda's house that night because he passed the Crandall house on the way and around 9.30 p.m., he knocked on the door and asked if he could join the party. Inside, Paul tells campus police that Kristen was acting, quote, overly flirtatious, going up to every guy at the party and introducing herself as Roxy. In fact, when campus police first located Paul on Tuesday, May 28th, to ask if he was the person who walked Kristen Smart back to the dorms, he claims that he didn't even know who they were talking about, because it was the first time he had heard her referred to as Kristen, and not Roxy. After midnight now, on Saturday, May 25th, we'll fast forward through when Kristen was found lying down on the lawn next door, helped up by Tim Davis, and started walking with Cheryl Anderson and Paul Flores toward the dorms. When they reached the corner of Grand Avenue and Perimeter Road, Cheryl says she asked Paul if he could take Kristen the rest of the way, since her dorm building, Sierra Madre Hall, was up Grand Avenue, which meant she needed to turn right after the crosswalk. This is when she says Paul asked her for a kiss and then a hug. After being assured by Paul that he could get Kristen back to her dorm on his own, she turns right and walks up Grand without ever looking back. She estimates in her deposition that this was around 2 a.m. On May 30th, Paul tells campus police that he has no idea what time it was, but that after Cheryl left, he immediately separated from Kristen, walked up Perimeter Road alone, and entered the front door of Santa Lucia Hall. He says he never saw Kristen past Sequoia Hall, the red brick dorm building closest to the crosswalk where Cheryl left. Investigators have a hard time buying this story. For starters, they have a number of girls from the party who have told them that Paul was aggressively flirting with them that night, groping them and trying to kiss them even after they told them they had boyfriends. Then Cheryl says he asked to kiss her at the crosswalk, and just seconds later, he's left alone with a girl he describes as overly flirtatious, who's too drunk to walk on her own, and he decides to just leave her there. Campus police call him out on this, but he's insistent. Once DA investigators step in to assist, though, they let him know that they're not even remotely buying it. We know you were somewhere else with her. We know that that wasn't the last place you that's saw her. That's the last place I saw her. Well, no, we know that's not true. And then they tell him why. If we have somebody who wasn't at the party, who didn't know you, didn't know Roxy, but happened to be in that area, and they contact us and said that she saw a guy fitting your description, doesn't know your name, doesn't know you from and a girl that was taller than him, walking up that way together, would that be accurate or would that, that be false? Walking where? 
Pass where you last saw her. Pass where you last saw her, exactly. No, I didn't see her after that. Okay. You, you know what a photo lineup is, Mom? Yeah. You know where you huh? get, a, get a picture and you put five other pictures yeah. in there? What if we did a photo lineup and somebody picked your picture out of six and said they saw you with Roxy at a location other than where you said you were at? Why would they say they saw you someplace other than right there? I have no idea. And they pick your picture out and they pick Roxy out, out of the lineup. See, and that's why we're trying to find out why you don't want to tell us about whatever else happened. I'm just for my curiosity, where else was I seeing that then? I'm just curious. Well, we can't go into a lot of that. I'm not sure how many witnesses the investigators are referring to, but if even one person saw Kristen and Paul together past the crosswalk at Grandin Perimeter, it pokes a hole in the Flores family's two-decade, he-went-that-way-she-went-that-way defense. And I went up to my dorm, this is the walkway goes that way towards my dorm, and then she started walking that way. They parted ways, yeah, well, you know, his dorm was here and hers was there. He went that way and she went that way. Is there anyone who saw something after 2 a.m.? Two years ago, when I walked into the San Luis Obispo courthouse and requested any public documents on the Kristen Smart case, I was given a 29-page privilege log dated July 1997. I've since learned that this log was the result of a legal battle where the Smart family's attorney, James Murphy, fought for the sheriff's department to turn over their investigative materials to be used in the family's wrongful death suit against Paul Flores. The sheriff's department resisted and the case ended up in San Luis Obispo Superior Court, where in April of 1997, Judge Paul Coffey appointed an independent attorney to, quote, peruse investigative records to determine what could and could not be disclosed to the Smart family. The privilege log, which I described in episode one as resembling a table of contents for the boxes and boxes of investigative documents, lists every report and every interview conducted by campus police, the sheriff's department, and the DA investigators up to that point, followed by the words disclose or do not disclose. One of these items, which was never disclosed to the Smart family, is titled, quote, Report of Contact with Australian Student. I never knew the significance of this report until I found this entry in Stan Smart's 1996 notebook. Thursday, June 27th, 4.20 p.m. Australian exchange student saw a boy and girl struggling in front of the dorms. I spent a few weeks looking for information about an Australian exchange student who attended Cal Poly in 1996. I searched by technical trades, engineering, or agriculture, or architecture, LinkedIn pages, and blogs, until I found a name. Neil Van Est was a 30-year-old Cal Poly exchange student from Canberra, Australia, and studying landscape architecture in May of 1996. Today, he lives in Norway. I found a listing online for the architecture firm he works for now, and on a whim, I sent him an email. I do this a lot, by the way, when I'm trying to track people down, and most of the time I never get a reply. But just a couple hours later, I received a response. Hi, Chris. Firstly, yes, you found the right Neil Van Est. And secondly, wow, this is really amazing. I got cold shivers reading your email. We schedule a time to talk, 
and he sends me the longest phone number I've ever seen. Uh, Neil speaking. It's been 24 years, and Neil was told that investigators believe that the incident he had witnessed that night was probably unrelated to this case, so he hasn't given it much thought in the years since. So my, my first question for you is, when is the last time that you were contacted about this? Oh, um, and that, that would have been in, in 96, yeah. Have they ever followed up with you again? No. But luckily, with his information, I was able to track down some of the original reports on Neil's story, which were briefly disclosed in 1997, before the Sheriff's Department filed their objection to the release. The story, in 1996, was as follows. It wasn't until the end of June, when police learned that Neil may have been a witness that night. A female exchange student he was studying with on May 25th told detectives that when the news broke about a girl who had gone missing from campus, Neil shared with her what he had seen on May 25th. He said he wasn't sure if he wanted to mention this to the police, though, since he was scheduled to fly back to Australia and was afraid that getting involved would hold up his travel plans. The female went to investigators later that month and told them what she had heard. By then, the sheriff's department had taken over the case. So with help from the FBI, they tracked down Neil in New South Wales and asked him to come into his local police department to give a statement. I'm going to summarize this statement for clarity. Around 2 a.m. on May 25th, Neil Van Est was studying in the Dexter building, the building next to the library, which now houses an art gallery and a subway. When he left, he got on his bicycle and started his ride home to 1090 Grove Street, a 10-minute bike ride according to Google Earth. Uh, so I hop on, on my bike and I... Uh... Um, I drive through campus. He turned left onto North Polyview Drive, right onto Via Carta, which took him past the engineering building, and then left on Perimeter Road, the road toward the red brick dorms. In front of Sequoia Hall, he turned right onto Grand Avenue, the same direction Cheryl Anderson had headed, likely just several minutes earlier. He passed the newly built Performing Arts Center on his right, and Vista Grande, the dining complex on his left. Just past that building, on the left-hand side of Grand, he noticed a ground floor building with bright fluorescent lights on, which caught his attention because it was the only building with lights on. He says it wasn't a dorm room. It looked like some kind of common room or lounge with floor to ceiling windows that faced the street unobstructed. And I looked to my left and there's Two people, a boy and a girl, having a struggle. Inside the building, just behind the glass doors, were a male and female, engaged in some kind of physical struggle. Backlit by fluorescent lights, he couldn't make out all of their features. But in 1996, he was able to describe the male as young, average height, probably around 5'10", medium build, short hair, clean-shaven, and a typical-looking university student. He describes the female as fairly tall for a girl, closer to six feet, several inches taller than the male, slim to medium build, with shoulder-length hair. He says the pair were facing each other, with their arms in the air over their heads and their hands locked together. The male appeared to be forced backwards as the female tried to push him away. 
He says he got the impression that the struggle was aggressive and not playful. The female looked like she was trying to get away. It, it appeared quite physical. It looked more than more than just as if they were boyfriend girlfriend, like having uh, a little bit of an, an argument or something. Like it looked more serious than that, I guess. Because he's riding his bike, he only sees them for about five seconds. And by the time he processes what he just saw, he's already passed the building and talks himself out of turning around for another look, proceeding home instead. They disappeared out of sight and I kept going. Uh, so I rode my bike home. He says the campus was silent and he didn't see a single person for his entire ride home, except the male and female in the window. After our call, I spent some time on Google Earth, following Neil's path home that night. Investigators did the same, walking the route with a video camera and mailed the tape to Australia. They took a, took a film of where they thought I had explained where I had seen the struggle. Uh, but when we got the video, it was in a different part of the campus. Like it was, I think it was around the corner. Couldn't quite see the unit where I had seen this struggle. So they filmed the wrong, the, the wrong area, basically. In Neil's memory, the building was hard to identify from the tape because investigators didn't turn on to Grand Avenue, which meant he was only given a side view. Still, slow sheriff's detective Henry Stewart concludes that the building was likely Sierra Madre Hall, Cheryl Anderson's dorm. Sierra Madre Hall consists of six residence towers where students live, and a standalone lounge not attached to any of the towers. This lounge has a large floor-to-ceiling window and glass double doors which face Grand Avenue, unobstructed. It's also my conclusion that this is the only building that Neil could have been describing in that area. Frustratingly, Detective Stewart terminates his investigation of Van Est's sighting after this point because he doesn't think it was related to this case. This is likely because his operating theory at the time was that since cadaver dogs had alerted to Paul Flores' dorm room, that Kristen was taken to Santa Lucia Hall and not Sierra Madre. But I've never seen any conclusive evidence that leads me to believe that Kristen couldn't have been taken somewhere else first, or even that she was never in Santa Lucia, only the scent that someone brought back to room 128. And I don't think detectives have concluded this either. This is best evidenced by the excavation of Polly Hill in 2016, an undertaking that implies that investigators were considering that Kristen was taken up the hill alive, since it seems implausible that someone would have risked carrying her body up there, out in the open where anyone could see them. Therefore, if they think Kristen could have been taken up Polly Hill, it's just as reasonable that she could have been struggling with Paul in the lounge of Sierra Madre, just 300 yards from the spot where Cheryl Anderson left them. What I was meant to believe was that um, it wasn't related, so uh, the police never followed it up anymore. I think it would be more of a stretch to say that Neil saw another male and female, the male around 5'10", the female closer to 6 feet, engaged in a physical struggle just after 2 a.m. near the corner of Grand and Perimeter Roads. 
more of a stretch than it would be to reason that Neil was possibly the last person, besides the perpetrator, to see Kristen smart in the moments before she became a missing person. Next on the timeline, Paul Flores says he goes back to his Santa Lucia dorm room alone and goes to sleep. He doesn't know what time it was. In his interview with campus police on May 30th, they ask if he stayed in his room all night. And Paul volunteers that he vomited at one point and then got up to shower in the communal dorm bathroom sometime around 5 a.m. The shower is just three doors down from room 128. He says he thinks someone saw him in there because he heard a stall door close. Police tell him to rack his brain for who that person could have been because they may be the only alibi Paul has for that morning. They ask him to provide them with the name by the following week, but Paul never locates a witness. On May 25, 1996, the sun rises in San Luis Obispo at 5.51 a.m. The Cal Poly campus is quiet, and Paul Flores is not seen by anyone for another 12 hours. He doesn't make a single phone call from his dorm room all day. For context, 20 calls were placed from Paul and Derek's room phone on Tuesday, May 21st. Eight calls were placed on Wednesday, May 22nd. Four calls on Thursday, May 23rd and 12 calls were placed on Friday, May 24th. The last one at 8.59 p.m. to Paul's sister Irma Linda's house before he left his room to walk there and stopped instead at the Crandall Way party. But on May 25th, Paul doesn't call anyone from his room. No one sees him in the communal restroom shared by the occupants of 18 other dorm rooms on the first floor of Santa Lucia Hall. And worse, Paul is never asked to account for this time. Campus police on May 30th ask him about his 5 a.m. shower. DA investigators on June 19th ask him about the shower and his whereabouts on Saturday night. But no one ever asks Paul Flores where he was between 5 a.m. and 6 p.m. on Saturday, May 25th. He says that he only left his dorm room to shower because of a bad taste in his mouth. And then it's implied that he returned to bed afterwards, but he doesn't mention when he woke up again. He does say directly that he didn't go home to Arroyo Grande until Sunday morning. But the window between his shower and his first sighting by another student is 13 hours. If we take into account the fact that the only thing putting Paul in the shower at 5 a.m. is his own story, without a witness to confirm this, the last person to see Paul Flores before 6 p.m. on Saturday is Cheryl Anderson, at the corner of Grand and Perimeter, walking toward his dorm with his arm around Kristen, around 2 a.m., an inexplicable 16-hour gap. For context, that's enough time to drive from San Luis Obispo to Mexico 
and back. Because Paul has refused to answer questions about this case since walking out of his interview on June 19, 1996, to the best of my knowledge, this gap has never been filled in. Where was Paul for 16 hours that day? What was he doing? Who was he with? And where did they go? The gap is officially closed around 6 p.m. on Saturday, when Paul Flores enters the lighthouse, a cafeteria on the Cal Poly campus, and has dinner with his friends Javier and Mike. Javier and Mike are described by Paul's roommate, Derek Say, as the only two friends Paul has at Cal Poly. According to Derek, no one else seemed to like Paul. In 1996, Mike, whose last name I am intentionally leaving out, lived on the second floor of Santa Lucia Hall, above Paul's room, and was four years older than Paul. On February 3, 1996, when Paul was arrested for driving under the influence, he was jailed overnight and then released at 4 p.m. into Mike's custody, according to the police report. I don't know his relationship to Paul or why he was called that day. Javier is a civil engineering major, lives in Diablo Hall, one of the North Mountain dorms at Cal Poly, and is eight years older than Paul. Investigators learn about him from Paul's interview on June 19th, and two days later, they contact him at his residence in Bakersfield, two hours east of Cal Poly, where he's moved following the end of the spring quarter. According to police reports, which were unsealed and released to the media back in 1996. Cal Poly campus detective Mike Kennedy called Javier at 9 a.m. on Friday, June 21st, and requested to meet face-to-face to speak to him about a missing person. Javier says he doesn't know of any missing person and requests a phone meeting instead, but Kennedy insists on meeting in person and asks for his address. They arrange a meeting for 4 p.m. that same day, But two minutes after hanging up, Javier calls back and tells Kennedy that he didn't know Kristen Smart. Detective Kennedy notes in his report, During the first conversation, I did not mention the name of the missing person. When detectives Mike Kennedy and Ray Barrett arrive at Javier's house after 4 p.m., he's not home, and they're told by a neighbor that he just left. They return an hour later to find a car in the driveway and call his house from a cell phone. Javier answers and tells them that he's busy and has to leave again in 15 minutes, but they insist that this is very important, and he lets them inside. They ask him when he first saw Paul over Memorial Day weekend, and he says it was Saturday night around 6 p.m. at the Lighthouse Cafeteria. After that, he says, they got a ride from Mike, to downtown Center Cinemas, the movie theater on Marsh Street next to Juice Club, what's now called Jamba. The story Javier tells about Saturday night is identical to the story Paul told investigators two days earlier. Mike drops them off at downtown Center Cinemas. The one downtown by Juice Club. Club? And then leaves to go hang out with his girlfriend. He just drove you but didn't go. Right, his girlfriend was coming to his Javier and Paul see a 9.40 showing of Mission Impossible, and then sneak in to see the end of Twister. When we saw Mission Impossible, then we saw Twister. 
Javier says that after the movies, they walk to Tortilla Flats at 1051 Napomo Street, a Mexican restaurant and cantina that hosted dance parties at night to look for his friends. When they don't find them there, Javier says they walk to Taco Bell on Santa Rosa, coincidentally right across the street from where Paul's sister Irma Linda was living at the time. They ate at Taco Bell and then walked back to campus around 2 a.m. At the conclusion of their interview, Javier tells the investigators that Paul is, quote, really annoying, but that he does not think he could do something like this. Sunday, May 26th, Paul Flores calls home from his dorm at 9.47 a.m. It's the first call he's made from the phone in his room since calling Irma Linda's house on Friday night. According to Ruben Flores' 1997 deposition, he picks up Paul from Cal Poly around 10 or 11 a.m. When you picked your son up uh, that su- uh, Sunday at 10 or 11 o'clock up at Cal Poly, where did you pick him up? At the... In front of the building, at okay. the front door. Did you go into his room? No. Uh, did he have any objects with him at the time that you picked him up? A duffel bag? Bag of goodies. Okay. Do you know what was in the bag? Cupcakes, cookies. Like a paper bag full of cupcakes? Paper, plastic, something. Okay, and, and do you know why he had a bag of goodies? Yes, he always brought home a bag of goodies. When he's asked the same question during his 2007 deposition, quote, Did he bring anything with him when you picked him up on Sunday? He answers, laundry. Question, just some laundry? Answer, yes. Did he take it home and do his laundry? Answer, yes. This response is interesting for two reasons. One, it's something that he left out when asked in 1997 what Paul brought home that morning. And two, The fact that he brought home laundry to wash could be important. Ruben answers that he doesn't recall whether Paul usually brought laundry with him when he would come home to Arroyo Grande. And it's worth noting here, the clothes that Paul Flores wore the night he walked Kristen home have never been found. They were described by multiple people at the party that night, including Cheryl Anderson. And investigators looked for them when they served a search warrant at Ruben's house in July of 1996, after Paul had moved back home from Cal Poly, but they weren't there. It's part of the reason that James Murphy asked what Paul brought home with him that Sunday morning. So was Reuben lying in 1997 when he left out the part about Paul having laundry with him? Did he forget that he had lied by the time he was asked about it again in 2007? Or did his memory of events get better over the span of 10 years. According to that same deposition in 1997, Ruben says that after he picked up Paul from Cal Poly, they went to the Arroyo Grande Strawberry Festival together, a yearly celebration held in the village, which features vendors, carnival rides, and other attractions. After this, he says, they went back home, where Paul took a nap and stayed home for the rest of the afternoon. But according to Paul's friend Jeremy, who's interviewed by DA investigators on June 7th, he picked up Paul from Ruben's house that day. He says Paul was wearing a baseball cap, which seemed unusual, but that when he took it off, Jeremy noticed he had a black eye. Jeremy says he asked, quote, what happened to you? Did you get rat packed at a party? 
Paul says he doesn't know how the black eye happened, that he just woke up with it. I've already talked about the importance of this black eye, but it's worth getting into just how much deception surrounds the whole thing. When Cal Poly police interview Paul on May 30th, they explain to him that this situation, quote, is as serious as you can get. She hasn't surfaced. We haven't found any sightings of her. At this point, you're the last person that saw her. Paul agrees, yeah, yeah, that's serious. Detective Kennedy tells him, quote, I can't impress upon you how important it is that you're completely honest here. Just minutes later, Paul will tell police for the first time that he got his black eye and scratches in a basketball game on Monday the 27th, which he'll later admit was a lie. So even after investigators explain to him how serious this situation is, Paul decides that the source of his black eye shouldn't matter. Here's a clip from his DA interview on June 19th where he defends this lie. You lied to yourself, right? Oh, it's not really lies, but fair. It's so, so minute, it's not, well, well, I guess you can call it a little white lie, but. Have you got your black eyes a white lie? Yep. So from the start of the investigation, Paul is picking and choosing when to be honest with the police and even with his friends. His friend Javier tells the police that he too asked about Paul's black eye on Tuesday, and he was also told the basketball story. But Jeremy, who saw the black eye before the basketball game, was told that Paul just woke up with it. Why was it so hard for you to tell us that you got that black eye hit in the steering wheel? It didn't really matter. It was days later, so, so why would it? Like, if it didn't matter, then why did you lie about it? Well, well, it doesn't matter if I leave out little details. Doesn't it, it, it. There are consequences to decisions like this. When the Flores family complains that their son was unfairly pursued by investigators, it's important to remember who hung those red flags. And... It's not just Paul who tries to justify lying to investigators about this. Did your son ever tell you that he admitted to lying to the police about how he got his uh, black mark on his face? I understand by lying. Okay. Did your son ever tell you something to the effect that when they first asked me how I had a, why I had a black eye, I told them that I got elbowed in a basketball game. I can't remember what he said. He's, he said he was confused, but I don't remember if he's the word lying. That's a. He said that he was confused about how he got the mark on his face. No, but it's just his answer. He knew how he got it, but he just was confused about giving the answer. Did he say what confused him about giving the answer? No. Jeremy says he and Paul went back to the apartment where he was living with another friend at the time, and he and Paul made small talk about what they'd been up to lately. According to the DA investigators' notes, which were unsealed in August of 1996 and widely printed in local newspapers, Paul told Jeremy he had attended a Cal Poly party on Friday night and, quote, got a blowjob from some slut in the bathroom there. He says the girl then started hanging all over every other guy at the party. Remember Trevor Belter, who says Kristen pulled him into the bathroom at Crandall Way? And then, when Trevor came out a few minutes later... I shut the door, 
And immediately this guy steps in front of me. And he goes, what I'd like to know is what you did with her in the bathroom. And I, I was like, oh, God, like thinking, oh, this is her boyfriend or something. I'm like, oh, what did I get into? I have no idea what I'm doing. And I go, nothing, man. And then this, like, relief washed over his face. It was weird. And he started laughing, like, and I was like, oh, you're just some idiot. That was him. It was Paul Flores. It was totally him. So Paul was clearly under the impression that something sexual was going on in the bathroom. Is it a coincidence that this exact detail comes out in the story he tells his friend two days later? Or that he mentions the girl hanging on other guys at the party, which he told campus police Roxy was doing? It sure sounds like Paul is talking about Kristen Smart. While less explicit, Javier also tells police that Paul told him the missing girl was, quote, flirting with him at the party. Jeremy tells investigators that he assumed this story about what happened in the bathroom was nothing more than macho bragging, because he believes that Paul is a virgin. Here's another point where Paul decides that he doesn't have to be completely truthful with investigators. In his interview with campus police on May 30th, Paul admits to Detective Kennedy that he is a virgin. He's never done more than kiss a girl. But then two weeks later, when DA investigators ask him the same question. How many times have you had sexual intercourse? Four, maybe? Four times? When was the last time you had some sex? I think it was uh, during Christmas time. Christmas? Yeah, right. Uh, According to Jeremy, after hanging out at his friend's apartment for a little while, he and Paul went to see a movie with a group of friends. But according to Ruben Flores' 1997 deposition, Paul stayed home that whole day until he and Ruben went to dinner together at Splash Cafe in Pismo. So someone is not telling the truth here. Also according to Ruben Flores' 1997 deposition, sometime after midnight, Paul removes the stereo of his 93 Ford Ranger, which is parked in the garage at Ruben's house getting his black eye in the process. When you saw him on Sunday, when you picked him up, he did not have this mark on his face, correct? Correct. When you saw him Sunday evening, he did? Yes. And did you ever ask him why he had this mark on his face? Well, he had been working on the car. Do you know what he was working on the car doing? Uh, uh, removing the stereo. And do you know which... Uh, car he was working on the ranger and what was wrong with the stereo um we were having it removed uh, we wanted him to remove all the stereo equipment from the car and why did you want him to remove the stereo equipment from the ranger because my wife was going to sell the car right how soon after paul uh is alleged to have removed the stereo equipment did the car get put up for sale it did not get put up for sale all right. Did he, in fact, take the stereo out of the car? Yes. After he took the stereo yes. out of the car that Sunday and allegedly suffered this injury to his face, where did he put the stereo? In the garage. Okay. And where is the stereo now? Stolen. Stolen. Paul's clothes, Paul's truck, Ruben's truck, Paul's stereo, all of it starts to disappear. Monday, May 27th, 1996, is Memorial Day. 
According to Susan Flores' 1997 deposition, she visits Ruben's house that morning and first notices Paul's black eye. When she asks him what happened, she says Ruben chimed in, quote, and then they both were talking, and I didn't pay much attention to it. Something about he was working on his car, and he said, yeah, he was. He was under the steering wheel and messing around with his stereo equipment. As I pointed out in episode 7, this seems to me like a pretty good indication that Susan was in the dark about what was going on that weekend, though Reuben and Paul were clearly not on the same page yet. From this point on, though, everyone's stories are the same. According to everyone, that afternoon, Reuben drops off Paul to hang out with Jeremy again, and the two of them join a pickup basketball game with two other guys at Harlow Elementary School. That evening, an Arroyo Grande police officer knocks on Ruben's door with an outstanding arrest warrant for Paul not showing up to court for a DUI hearing. When Paul comes home later that night, Ruben takes him immediately to the police station, where he's photographed with his black eye and several scratches on his hands and taken into custody. According to Ruben's 1997 deposition, he calls ABC bail bonds and bails Paul out around midnight. Afterwards, he says they go to Susan's house on Branch Street to talk to her, after which he drops Paul off at Cal Poly around 2 or 3 a.m. It's unclear what they were talking about. Tuesday morning, May 28th, is significant for several reasons. First, a missing person report is finally filed on Kristen Smart at 11.40 a.m. Ruben Flores, who works for GTE in Santa Maria and carpools on Tuesdays, arrives to pick up his co-worker in Paul's Ford Ranger rather than his own car. According to his co-worker, Ruben explains that he's driving Paul's truck because he's going to get Paul a new bedliner for his birthday. I've talked about this bedliner previously, the plastic that lines the inner bed of a pickup truck, and how Ruben's insistence that he never change the bedliner on either truck suddenly changes when James Murphy confronts him with the fact that someone with first-hand knowledge gave his office this information. And then... Ruben suddenly doesn't know what a bedliner is and asks for a definition. More puzzling is that Paul's birthday is in October. Susan Flores, who works at Oceano Elementary School, tells a coworker that morning that over the weekend, Ruben received a phone call in the middle of the night on Saturday and left in a panic. I've heard this story rumored for years now, but no one has ever been able to find a source for that tip. When I was going through the Smarts notebooks from 1996, I came across this tip from the day it came in. And even though it was anonymous, it included some other information that sounded familiar. And I realized I'd possibly already spoken to this person. So I called her to see if my suspicion was correct. Yes, that was me. I worked with her, and the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend, um, Susan came in to school, and she shared with me that Reuben, early, early Saturday morning, in the middle of the night, had gotten a phone call, and he just, you know, took off, and she was very puzzled by that. She couldn't understand why he did that. 
what she found odd is that he just took off. He just immediately took off. She had no idea, but it had. Um, she knew it had something to do with Paul. And I don't think they even divulged to her why even, because, you know, I saw her every day. There was never like an update of why. So she was confused by it. I absolutely believe she didn't know. At the beginning, she did not know. You know, deep down, did she know? You know, probably shortly after that. Back when this story was just a rumor, I saw people debate the logistics of it online. How could Susan know that Ruben had gotten a phone call that night when she was already living on Branch Street at the time of Kristen's disappearance? According to Susan's coworker, who was close to her at the time, Susan had confided in her that her relationship with Ruben was an abusive one. In fact, Susan had at least two documented hospital trips in the fall of 1996, where she had suffered significant injuries. One, she says, followed an argument with Reuben. And another, Reuben claims in his 1997 deposition that she tripped over a bench in a closet, suffering a fractured rib. Rib, Reuben emphasizes to James Murphy when asked about it, not ribs. Susan's coworker says that because of the nature of their relationship, Reuben and Susan were never really separated, even when she resided at Branch Street in 1996. She would stay at Reuben's for a few days and then go back to Branch Street whenever she wanted to get away from him. In fact, even when she moved back into Reuben's house full-time for a few months, while the Lassiter family rented her Branch Street home from fall to spring, she listed the rental in the paper, quote, $8.75 a month, three-bedroom, two-bath, rent outright, or possible share, leaving the door open for a possible refuge in case she needed it. Susan didn't move into the Branch Street house full-time until the Lassiters moved out in March of 1997. Back to Tuesday afternoon, May 28th, campus police are waiting outside of Paul Flores's class when he comes out. Kristen Smart has now been reported missing, and they've talked to several people at the party who have led them to Paul. He first tells them he doesn't know anyone named Kristen Smart, until he confirms that he saw her at the party and walked her home, but only knew her as Roxy. He says he walked her back to the front of Sequoia Hall, where they separated. By this point, they've already spoken to Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis, who both say Paul offered to take Kristen to her dorm. So leaving her outside of another dorm to walk the rest of the way alone raises some suspicion right away. And then, the last member of the immediate Flores family, Irma Linda, and her boyfriend Brett, are issued a marriage license that Tuesday. The timing is peculiar. It's hard to read too much into it without knowing all the facts surrounding that decision. But later that summer, after Paul's name is released to the media, Irma Linda and Brett will move to Southern California. And years later, when the case starts to get more publicity, she'll move to Amsterdam. Both moves, she later admits in her own deposition, were attempts to distance herself from this case. In October 1996, investigators make the rare decision to call a grand jury in order to subpoena witnesses. The grand jury is not asked to seek an indictment. 
only to get witnesses to testify under oath. The witnesses they choose to subpoena are Paul Flores, Ruben Flores, Susan Flores, Irma Linda Flores, and her husband Brett. It's clear that after five months of investigating this case, the district attorney's office and the sheriff's department have reached the conclusion that not just Paul Flores, but the entire Flores family may be hiding information about their knowledge of what happened to Kristen Smart. And then, after 23 years of additional investigation, investigators served search warrants at four separate locations, the homes of Paul Flores, Ruben Flores, Susan Flores, and Irma Linda Flores. People they still feel may have information about the disappearance of Kristen Smart. No one in the Flores family has ever been charged in connection with Kristen's disappearance. But if Paul is responsible for whatever happened to her, or knows more than he's told investigators, then his whole family has spent 24 years protecting this secret at the expense of their own lives, their relationships, and their health. Their biggest punishment, their own tortured thoughts, peeking out from behind their curtains every day of their lives wondering, is today the day that Paul's secret comes out? All of this because of something that happened between the hours of 2 a.m. and 6 p.m. on May 25, 1996. And, as investigators told Paul just three weeks after that, Paul, there is no doubt in our mind, none you know what happened to Rox. Okay? Not at all. We know that. Oh, this thing isn't going to go away. Yeah. I know. I understand that. We're not going away. This, this doesn't yeah. go away. Oh, this doesn't go away, but... understand that. I mean, it really doesn't. And it isn't going to go away. Because we've started the conversation all over again. And this time, the puzzle pieces are all in one place. Backyard, Episode 8, The 16-Hour Gap. Okay, so, um, we already listened to Episode 7 and Episode 8 into 1 about, um, where the hell Paul Flores was over a Memorial Day weekend in 1996 and in episode 7 we heard from Chris talk to um, the police about the investigation um, and that I was overhearing as well that the police were um, not helpful but but thankful that Chris had his um, podcast, you know, in backyard for that. And I was like, see, podcasts can't help. 
podcasts can help investigations because the more information we sleuthers find, the more information, the less information the police and detectives have on the case. Because most of the stuff that they overheard Chris talk about on their on his podcast and you know backyard, he has never heard of at all. Like they have never heard of most of the stuff or checked most of the stuff or did background on any of that. So they were thankful for Chris and his job as a podcaster for doing that. Which I love because that makes us more empowered and more as podcasters, as true crime podcasters, to continue our jobs to gain much information. Even if it's just a fragment of a little bit that we are helpful in the true crime community. And that's all I got to say on that. But the next episode, I am splitting um, a episode 9 and episode 10 because they're episode 9 is part 1 it's called the beginning of the end part 1 and then episode 10 is the beginning of the end part 2 so I'm splitting into two episodes (laughs) so yeah so tomorrow I'm gonna do that um and yeah And then we have 10 more episodes, and this is the court case. The next 10 episodes are the court case between um, Flores and the court and stuff. So yeah, hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode of the Kirsten Smart Case. Thank you, and talk to you guys in the next one. Bye!